You want to have some fun listening to some music, Denver and the Mile High Orchestra, Christian band. But man, I'm telling you what, you've never heard of them. You've never listened to them. You ought to look them up online and listen to a couple of their stuff. A lot of brass, a lot of stuff like this. Just a blast to listen to. When I heard that this morning, that's who I thought of as well. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to be in Acts chapter 19. You have sermon notes in your bulletin, kind of a synopsis of two messages, last Sunday's and this as well. Every other week or so, I like to give you an overview of where we are in our journey. I do expository teaching, which is taking a book of the Old Testament or New Testament and kind of unpacking it as we go along. Now, we've been interspersing that with a number of things over the last few months, and we'll continue to do that all the way up until Easter and beyond. So there'll be some really fun things that we will do, different in and out of the book of Acts, but mostly when I'm sharing, it's out of the book of Acts. Last Sunday morning, we were in Acts 18 and 19, where Paul is kind of unpacking for them two separate concepts using the same word. The word is baptism, but it has distinctively different meanings. And he fleshes them out in 18 and more specifically in 19. Now, we did that last Sunday morning as we talked about water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit. Next Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate one, and we use the word baptize. Baptizo is a Greek word that means to immerse, to be fully consumed by, to be overwhelmed by, to be engulfed in something. We do water. Here, we do full immersion, all the way under, all the way up. The more you've sinned, the longer you stay under. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. But it's an opportunity to celebrate that word, that phrase, that concept of I am all the way under, I am being consumed by God, I'm giving my whole life to him, I'm completely walking away from my past, I'm setting it all behind me and I've got a new life in Christ. Now we don't say all of that while they're under the water, but that's what it signifies. So that every under, everyone understands who goes through the water of baptism, the transition has taken place. This is what I was before God. This is what I did. This is how I acted. This is the direction I was going. I was doing my own thing, going by my own life, running my own dreams. And then I came full confrontation with Jesus. At some point, it may have been in sixth grade. Now, most of the time, fifth and sixth graders don't have a life consumed with sin. But every single one of us are sinners in need of the glory and grace of God. We are born into sin. Every single one of us, Scripture tells us, are sinners in need of a Savior. That little one is a precious little gift from God, and she is an angel, but she is born in sin. And we all have that nature in us. And the only way to be freed of that sin, the only way to have a redemption from that sin, is what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why we celebrate such a risen Savior. A God who's not on the cross, but a God who rose from the dead and offers us new life in himself. And once we make that commitment, once we turn our lives over to Jesus, we take that next step of following him in baptism to recognize and publicly display what's taken place in my life when I gave my life to Jesus. In Matthew 28, when Jesus was saying to them, I want you to go out and take this gospel message to the end of the earth. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I honestly don't believe he was referring to water baptism. I think he was saying, immerse them in the Father, overwhelm them with the grace of Jesus, engulf them with the Spirit, and in all of that, they will come out different. They will publicly acknowledge that they are a different creature in Christ. Now, when Paul uses that word, everyone knew exactly what he was talking about. 
Because they used that in the context of a piece of cloth, whatever color it may have been, being now dipped in a dye. And when it came out, it was different than when it went in. So you see the concept. So when Paul uses the word, everyone knew what that meant. It's different. This is what it looks like going into the water or the dye. This is what it looks like coming out of that. And that's one of the reasons we celebrate it. One of the reasons we're doing it on a Sunday morning so that everybody has the opportunity to celebrate in what God's done in their life or what God is doing in their life. This is what I was. This is what Jesus did. This is what I'm doing now. And baptism is a symbol of what's taking place. In Acts 16, when we shared the story a month ago of Lydia coming to faith in Christ, she knew who God was. She knew all about God. She had read the scriptures, but now she had a full understanding of who Jesus was. And when you see Paul talking in these terms here in Acts 18 and 19, you've got to remember this is a brand new concept for first century believers. Jesus had only come and appeared just a few decades before that. And now Paul is trying to help them understand that all they had studied in all the Old Testament about God and who he was was culminated in Christ. And everything we had waited for for century after century after century is now complete in Jesus. And that Messiah that was promised has now come. And he became God's offering as a sacrifice for our sins. He died on a cross so that no longer do we have to bring a dove or a ram to hopefully have our sins eradicated. We know that because of what Jesus did on the cross, I don't have to pay the penalty for my sin. Because not only is all, are all of us sinners in need of a Savior, God very clearly tells us that the price he demands for sin is death. And Jesus took it in our place. And died on a cross and thrill of all thrills rose from the dead and seated with God in the heavenly realms and ever lives to be an intercessor for us. And when I recognize that and recognize what he did in my life, I want to take this next step of publicly declaring my allegiance to Jesus. Of acknowledging what I was and what I no longer want to be and following him in baptism. And I want to now say that to everyone. You may have told a few people that you came to faith in Christ. You may have shared your story with a few family members or maybe a few other people or many times it was in a private setting and now next Sunday morning is an opportunity to publicly say, I am not ashamed that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want everyone to know that. And then we're going to celebrate with them. Man, we're going to clap. We're going to applaud. If I had balloons being able to come from the ceiling, I'd do that as well. Because it is a celebration. Scripture said all of heaven rejoices when one comes to faith in Christ. Jesus uses a powerful example, a number of them in Luke 15 when he talks about a lost coin and a, a lost sheep and a lost son. And how everything was done so that that one who was lost could be found. And when that lost coin was found and that lost sheep was found and that lost son came home, everyone in all of those contexts rejoiced. And we want to do that next Sunday morning in rejoicing of that. Baptism doesn't save you. It is a public declaration of what's taken place in your life. What saves you is the blood of Jesus Christ and your acceptance of him as your savior. Many times because of the way we look at scripture, evaluate scripture, it's easy to put the two together and sometimes we'll think they have to go that. I have, I have a number of questions that I've been asked all of my life. Not a member here, can I get baptized? Not a member here, can I have a wedding? I'm not a member here, but can you pray for me? It has nothing to do with membership. You're a part of this family. 
Your entrance into heaven isn't because you were baptized. Your entrance into heaven is because what Jesus did on the cross and you accepted him as your savior. This baptism is a public declaration of that statement and an opportunity for us to celebrate in what Jesus has done in your life. Now, in many evangelical churches, as I said last Sunday morning, like ours, we dedicate babies like we did this morning and we baptize believers and we acknowledge in front of the world that they are coming to faith in Christ. One of the sidebar questions that I'm always asked every time we have a baptism service is, what about my children? Now, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic before that. My family was and then Presbyterian, and everything was, a, was an age limit. Kind of age 12 was that magic number. And uh, when I grew up Presbyterian, you couldn't take communion until you were 12. We moved when I was 11 and a half. I waited 11 years for that. And, and all of a sudden, we transitioned, and then I found out it was based on my faith in Christ, not an age. And so we do say that with parents. It's not a particular age, but we want a certain amount of maturity that goes with that. Uh, almost every time we have a, a, a VBS or a Sunday school class of second or third graders or four or five-year-olds, we ask them they want to accept Jesus. They all, of course, say yes. And that's an awesome experience. We want them to fully understand what they've done. But as the maturity comes in, then they really grasp the concept of what's taking place. And so you as a parent and we tonight will help you decide if they're prepared, if they're ready for that. Again, it's not an age I usually like them to be around 9 or 10 so that they fully understand what's taking place in their life. Couples, families getting baptized is an enormous thrill to be able to celebrate that milestone together as a family. And we'll explain all that tonight. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, as we finished last Sunday morning, the first step you need to take is inviting Christ into your life. That seals your eternal destiny. The moment you accept Christ as your Savior, that seals your eternal destiny. The last thing you want to be uncertain about is your eternal destiny. Because life is too unpredictable and uncertain. The next step ought to be baptism or should have been baptism somewhere along the way. My fault that we haven't done it in a long time here. And I take personal responsibility for that. But that is one of the next steps you ought to take. Paul then continues in this journey in Acts 19 to explain another step. The power of the Spirit. The overwhelming, consuming power of God's Spirit on our life. We see it all over the book of Acts. Here in Acts 19, we see a very similar experience to what took place in the upper room. Paul asks a unique question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, again, you've got to remember the context, and this is a brand new understanding for them, having just walked out of an Old Testament understanding of the Messiah coming, and now here he is. For us today, the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. Ezekiel 36, I put a new covenant of my spirit within you. Old Testament, the spirit came upon them for certain tasks. Jesus said a new covenant is coming through Ezekiel, and I'll place my spirit within you. John 7, he said, he who believes in me, streams of living water will flow from him. By that he meant the spirit whom they received when they believed. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the dwelling place of the spirit of God who is in you? What I see here in the book of Acts is the empowerment or power of the spirit coming upon them. I believe in verse 6, the word baptism refers to the fact that they were fully immersed in the fullness of Christ. And that prepared them to be overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. The effect of that is different on different people. 
Last Sunday morning, when we read that context of Scripture in Acts 19, we saw that when they laid their hands on them and the Spirit of God took control of their life, they began to prophesy and speak in other tongues, very similar to what we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where the empowerment of the Spirit landed on them to do and accomplish what Jesus had asked them to do. Jesus is standing on a mountain with 11 disciples that he had spent three years with. They had seen him, they had ministered with him, They'd seen him on the cross. They'd seen him laid in a tomb. They saw him rose from the dead. He appeared to them on a number of occasions. On one final occasion in Acts chapter 1, he gives them this challenge. It's also similarly recorded in Matthew 28, but he said, look, I want you to take this life-transforming gospel to the end of the earth. Didn't have internet. Didn't have vehicles. They had their feet some camels, and some donkeys. And he's telling them to take this life-transforming gospel to the end of the earth. They were struggling with the concepts themselves to fully embrace and understand what he was even talking about. But he said to them, I want you to take this everywhere you go. Begin where you're at. Take it to Jerusalem, Jamaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. He said, you're never going to be able to do this on your own. So what I want you to do is I want you to go back. I want you to stay in Jerusalem until the power of God lands on you. And when that lands on you, you'll have everything you need to do exactly what I've challenged you to do. But I'm telling you now, you can't do it on your own. You've got to wait for the power of God to land on you to accomplish what I just challenged you to do. And so they did. And they waited. And that power landed. And what Paul continues to refer to over and over again in the book of Acts is that experience where another group and another group and another group begin to place themselves in a position where God's spirit and his power can land on them to do exactly what he's challenged them to do, and that is take this gospel to the end of the earth. Wherever you are in your sermon notes, with a baptism of the Spirit, whether it frightens you or excites you, there is available to the people of God, to the church of Jesus Christ, a baptism that goes beyond an indwelling Spirit that comes subsequent to salvation, but a baptism of power to live the Christian life and do the work he's calling us to do. You can't live this Christian life on your own power. If you've ever tried, you recognize the failures that come with that. You can't fulfill the Great Commission On your own power. It comes on people who make themselves completely available to Christ and who fully submit themselves to Him, holding nothing back. And it comes on numerous occasions as we continue to carry out the plan of God and taking the gospel to the end of the earth. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said to them, This Ephesians group, now remember in Acts 19, he's in Ephesus. So he spends two years helping develop them and deepen their walk with God and understanding of what this is all about. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he said, look, I need you to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Be always in a place where God's Spirit can land on you and fulfill what he has promised he would do in allowing you to live this life that he's called you to and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. The effect is different in different people in your notes. Here is tongues. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it's strength to handle difficulty. Sometimes it is an amazing baptism of love. To love people that you would never otherwise love. Sometimes it's a power to complete a particular task. Sometimes in your notes, it's the power to share your faith. 
Here in this text, it came on by the laying of hands. It's not the only way it does. Here it does, and many times I've seen it that way, but at times it comes without the laying on of hands. I say that for this particular reason, so that we don't always look for a formula. Six easy steps to the fulfilling of the Holy Spirit. Seven easy steps for the baptism of the Spirit. Five specific ways to have the baptism of the Spirit. That's what we look for in our culture and many cultures like that. Give me the steps. Tell me exactly what to do. Give me a formula. Does it come this way? That's what I'll do. Does it come now? Does it come in those moments? What do I have to say? I say all of that so that we don't look for a formula. We simply make ourselves available to God to let him come on us and flow over us like he wants to. What are some of the evidences in your notes of the spirit-filled life in the book of Acts? You've got to remember that. I'm sharing in these next moments just from the book of Acts. The ultimate evidence of the spirit of God fulfilling an individual's life or filling an individual's life is in Galatians 5 when it's the ability to live out the fruit of the spirit. Now, many will say the evidence of being filled with the spirit is speaking in tongues. We don't agree with that. It is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely certain of that. Not the ultimate evidence. There are a number of them, gifts of the Spirit that you see out of Acts chapter 2 and have all the verses in your sermon notes this morning. The boldness to witness, to share my faith in Acts chapter 2. Peter, of all things, once the Spirit of God lands on him, becomes the ultimate spokesperson for the message of salvation to people that he would have never otherwise talked to before. Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God lands, I'm able to let go. I'm not holding on to my possessions so tightly that I can't share them with those around me. And in Acts 2, you see that classic section of Scripture where it said, and anyone had a need, they met the need. They didn't hold on to their stuff so tightly that they couldn't let go. Whenever there was a need and they recognized that need, not everyone sold all their possessions so that now all of us are poor. It had nothing to do with that at all. It had to do with the fact that I'm willing to let go of what I know God's asking me to let go of. And I'm not holding it onto it so tight that it's mine. You know what that's like with raising kids, right? I mean, the classic child saying is mine. They have 2,700 toys in their playroom. But the one their sibling wants is what? Mine. There's 2,700 other toys here. Doesn't seem to matter. This one is mine. And you know people that live like that. So many blessings from God, and they hold on to things so tightly. When the Spirit of God lands on your life, you're willing to let go and recognize when there are needs around you that you have the ability and the capacity to meet. You want to do that. The ability to give praise, declaring the wonders of God in Acts chapter 2. The power and the ability to heal. When Peter and John went to prayer in Acts chapter 3 and saw a man that was crippled from birth, Asked them for some money. He said, we don't have any silver or gold, but I'll tell you what we do have. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he did. And when the Spirit of God lands on a people, God's power of healing individually, sometimes and corporately, comes in the ability to heal. In Acts chapter 5, you see the gift of discernment landing on Ananias and Sapphira who came and said, this is all my money. I'm giving it all to God. And Peter said, no, you're not. Hold more back for yourself. And Knew that not because someone told him, but the Spirit of God told him. I've had people in my office through the years in counseling, and I don't want to scare any of you from coming into my office, 
But through the years, I've had people come into my office and we're talking about a certain issue and a number of aspects in their life. And I'll sense the Spirit of God saying, ask them about this. And then I'll ask them and they'll say, how on earth did you know? Spirit of God said. Doesn't always happen that way. Many times it does. What you love about that section of Scripture is a reminder again, you cannot hide from God. Courage under suffering in Acts chapter 5 and chapter 8. No matter what they were facing, they, were abil- they had the ability to endure. What I love about 8, we talked about a number of months ago, is in all the suffering and all the things that were taking place and all the uh, people coming against them and Saul himself trying to kill them, it says in chapter 8, verse 4, they went about everywhere they went in the midst of all of that persecution, preaching the word of God. Stephen, you see in Acts 7, confidence in death. No way he could have done that without the Spirit of God landing on his life. The lack of prejudice in chapter 10 and 11 and chapter 15. Seeing people for who they are and not by the color of their skin or the ethnicity of their background. But seeing them as people who need Christ. A Savior that died for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son. And so often we see people around us and we kind of look at them through a grid of color or ethnicity as opposed to a need, a child who needs Christ as Savior and a child of the living God. And once you really allow your life to be so saturated by the Spirit of God, you see people for who they are, not for what they wear, not for how they talk, not for where they come from, not from their background or not from the color of their skin. And that comes by two people who are willing to say, God, I can't do this on my own. I have biases. I have prejudices. I think I'm right. I think I'm the only one. I came here on the Mayflower. No one else did. I can't do this. Help me to have your spirit. Help me to have your eyes to see them for who they really are. And once you allow that to happen, you'll see people differently, I guarantee you. Rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. You will see them differently. Power of God to reach the loss, a desire to reach the loss. The miraculous taking place, as we'll see in a few weeks in Acts 19, power over the enemy. God said, look, I have given you this so that you can live the life I've called you to. I've given you everything you'll ever need. I love Ephesians. I've often wondered when Paul is writing or when Luke is writing 19, if somewhere, Acts 19, if somewhere he looked off and he he watched Paul and he knew Paul was taking notes or jotting some notes and then later it became the, the book of Ephesians back to this group and he said, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's amazing grace that he lavished on us. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This morning I'm going to celebrate communion. It is a reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And every time we take communion, he says, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember what I did. I want you to remember what I sacrificed. I want you to remember what I gave. I want you to remember how much I love you. I did this for you. For you and you and you. 
So remember me. Remember how much I loved you. This morning, I want you, as you hold those elements in your hand, to imagine in your mind or to think through for a few moments the fact that Jesus held nothing back. He gave absolutely everything he had for you and I. And so this morning in your quiet moments of prayer with him, when you hold these elements, I'd love you to have the freedom, and it's up to you, but the freedom to say the same thing to him. God, you have all, I want you to have all of me. I don't want to hold anything back. My stuff, my attitudes, my possessions, the way I look at people, I'm taking my hands off. And I I want you to have everything. I want you to so consume me with your spirit that I live the life you've called me to. I become the person you want me to be. I walk through this world a living, vibrant testimony of what you've done in my life. You held nothing back. You gave your all for me. And so this morning, I want to give all of me to you. Father, we thank you for these vivid reminders of what you did on the cross. For the opportunity periodically here that we have to celebrate it, that night in the upper room with your disciples, taking bread and a cup, sharing it with them, and reminding them again of the sacrifice that you were willing to make, and the love that you have for us, for them, and for the world. And so, Father, as we hold these elements in our hands, I trust that as we speak to you and your spirit speaks to us, that it will be an incredible few moments of giving you praise and adoration for what you've done, of maybe releasing our hands off of something in our life that we've held on to and asking you to so overwhelm us and saturate us with your spirit that it will be incredible. And so in these moments, find all the forces of darkness that would want to distort what you want to say today. Cast them out of this place, and Jesus, by your name and by your power, may you fill this place with your amazing presence. And ask the community stores to come. If you've not been here very regularly, you'll notice that everything is in one tray the bread and the cup, so take them out as it's passed. Help the person near you or around you so that everyone has the opportunity to share. Spend some moments with God. Justin's going to sing and be some time of reflection. Spend some quiet moments with him as we share, and then at the end of that, I'll lead you to partake. So if you could hold till everyone gets it.